Our text on this Sunday morning on the fifth Sunday in Lent, as we hear from the living God and His Word, is Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 1 to 19. It is Lent 5. Lent 5 always feels like a push to me to come to the end of this season of preparation for the marking of the Passion and then celebration of the Resurrection of the Lord. You would have detected both in the service and in the tone of this text that we are approaching Holy Week. Jesus at chapter 20 in Luke is now there in Jerusalem. And it strikes me, as I reflected concerning how to go about this sermon, that the key question really hasn't changed. By what authority do you do these things, Jesus? Or who is it that gave you this authority? That's the question the temple authorities ask him or rather demand that he tell them, in verse 2 of our text. But it's not as though the readers of Luke's Gospel would be puzzled about that question by this point. Surely the source of Jesus' authority has already been made clear. Jesus' authority comes from God. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Listen to that text. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now tell me, Jesus says, in our text in verse 3, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? The owner of the vineyard in Jesus' parable said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But of course, that was only the beginning in in Luke. In Luke chapter 4, in verses 17 to 21, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Remember this moment. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus began to say to them early there at the beginning of his ministry, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Verse 1 of our text in Luke 20 says, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Literally proclaiming good news. The very thing he knew he was anointed to do. Or you could think of texts like Luke chapter 5, verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, Jesus says, to forgive sins. He says to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You see, Luke's gospel is given the answer to this question that we come to in the temple in Jerusalem long before we come to this point of Luke's gospel. Jesus' authority comes from God, which is the very thing the authorities in the temple could not believe. Authority is the primary concern of the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, and Jesus has clearly challenged it, challenged their authority. Luke 19 describes his triumphal entry, which we'll take up next week on Palm Sunday, when Jesus then rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, amidst the adulation of the crowds, only then to go directly to the temple and throw out the traitors those doing business in the temple, to establish himself then as the teacher in the temple. So that verse 47 of Luke 19 says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Hanging on his words because Jesus taught with authority. Just as he had done from the very first, back in Luke chapter 4, verse 32, in Capernaum, Jesus is teaching them on the Sabbath, and Luke says there in Luke 4, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And here he is. In Jerusalem. Since chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, we've been on the road with Jesus to Jerusalem. Not that we've covered all that, but if you were reading it. Now he's there. Now he's in the temple. And he's teaching. Verse 1 of chapter 20. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, proclaiming the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? It's not very different today. Who gives you the authority to say what's true, Jesus? Who gives you the authority to say that something in my life is wrong? See, what happens over and over and over again is that people look at Jesus even today and say, well, who gives you that kind of authority? Who are you to override my political cause or my view of the world or my philosophical presuppositions or my financial commitments or my religious affiliation? You see, 
There was an authority structure in the temple, a pyramid structure with the chief priests at the top, with the high priest himself as the most senior figure. Who does Jesus think he is? He had no accreditation. He came from Nazareth. Poor. Rural. What kind of education did he have anyway? He just didn't fit within their understanding of authority structures. And he just doesn't fit in very well today either. He keeps saying things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Your father's the devil. I am the resurrection and the life. So really, has much changed? Is Jesus not cast off today for the same reasons, or thrown out, or even murdered? By what authority? Well, God's authority, of course. God's authority. The Christian confession has always been Jesus Christ is Lord. He has all authority. It's what he himself claims. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. His is not a derived authority. He possesses it. You see, the typical act of teaching in, in Jesus' day within the, the, the rabbinical context would be to cite a chain of authority in your teaching. So you'd say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so also permits that this. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that because he was the authority. And in our passage, the authority that he has over the temple is precisely his royal messianic authority, a royal status and authority that, as Jesus himself understood, had been conferred on him publicly at his baptism when the heavens opened and the Spirit descended and the voice came from heaven. If John was a true prophet then Jesus is the true Messiah with authority over the temple. We've known that since he came up out of the water, baptized by John, if you were here and you remember that early in January when we considered that baptism text. It's crucial. It's precisely where Jesus goes in verse 3. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. That's a very standard way of responding. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And specifically, I, I think Jesus means his baptism, at least as part of what he's talking about. That's the thing that is especially in view here. So, they call a committee meeting, verse 5, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say, from man, 
all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Now here again, if you were here when we started in the Luke narrative back in Advent, Luke made very clear, even from the words of the Spirit-filled Zechariah way back in chapter 1, that John's a prophet, commissioned by God. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You see, John was Jesus' forerunner, so if his authority was not from heaven, then he was a false prophet, well-deserving of the death that he suffered under Herod. But if his authority was from heaven, well, John's the one who testified that Jesus was greater than he was. Remember that? Luke chapter 3, verses 15 and 7. It's amazing in the temple context how often you have to go back to the first four chapters of Luke. Luke 3, verses 15 to 17. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, the Messiah, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's John. Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus has put these religious authorities into the corner. They say, no, John didn't work for the Lord. And they're in trouble. The people had decided John was a prophet. So as one commentator insightfully puts it, I think, of these religious authorities, their fear of the people takes precedence over their fear of God. I mean, do you notice that? They're worried here that a wrong answer might stoke the ire of the people against them. They're more worried about that than that they may kindle God's own judgment. And so their evasive answer in verse 7 is hypocritical. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. That's a political half-truth, no matter how you look at it. There's this fascinating parallel concept in earlier in Luke, in Luke 7, that I think is helpful. It's in Luke 7, verse 29, to really understand from Luke's perspective, what does this mean when they say they did not know where it came from? Luke 7, verse 29 where in Luke 7, in response to Jesus speaking explicitly about the ministry of John the Baptist and the significance of it and the significance of John, Luke then says in verse 29 of Luke 7, almost parenthetically, if you have a red letter Bible, these are letters in black because the rest of it's Jesus and here's Luke inserting it. When all the people heard this, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves. 
a stunning phrase. They rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The response to John determines your response to the Lord. They rejected the purposes of God. That's what the temple authorities are doing too, I would argue, within the narrative shape of Luke here, even as they just plead agnostic neutrality to save themselves. And you see, you also know that because with what comes next in our text here, Luke would have us see that these religious authorities have simply exposed their incompetence for understanding the way that God has worked in the world, for understanding indeed God's will for Israel. They've shown that they do not know the time of their visitation, to use Jesus' words, if you know them, in Luke 19 as he weeps over Jerusalem. You do not know the time of your visitation. They don't know it. And thus, as another commentator writes, it's the religious authorities who forfeit any right to be the temple's divinely authorized custodians. You see, they're missing it. And so Jesus says to them, verse 8, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Instead, what they get now is a parable in verses 9 to 19. And it's kind of a subtle thing, but you notice there in verse 9, if you look at the text, that Jesus speaks this parable to the people. The religious leaders are not open to what Jesus is saying. So he turns to the people now and addresses them. But it's in the presence of the leaders who are now made overhearers of what Jesus will say to the people. The parable isn't to the leaders, but it is about them, which becomes clear here when Luke says in verse 19 at the end of our text, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. No, the parable itself is not too hard to understand once you see what the different parts of it refer to. And here I, I am going with the interpretation that has been the common interpretation since the time of the early church on this passage, where the elements of this parable signify things. The one who plants the vineyard in this parable is God. The vineyard itself is Israel. And these tenant farmers who are given stewardship over the land of the vineyard represent the leaders of Israel. And I think there's little doubt that this would have instantly been understood. Israel thought of itself as the vineyard of God. There's several scriptures that make that allusion. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, most famously draws that parallel. We won't read it right now, but it's there. It's stunning to know that, in fact, this connection of Israel identifying as the vineyard was so much a part of their thinking that surrounding the entrance to the temple sanctuary 
was a huge golden grapevine with grape clusters signifying Israel as God's fruitful vine. This is where Jesus is teaching. And in the parable, of course, the man then let out the vineyard to the tenants and then he went into another country for a long while and eventually the man sends servants. Three times in the parable he does this. Each time the servants are beaten, they're treated shamefully, they're sent away, they're cast out. The servants in the parable are the prophets. The the prophets throughout Israel's history The parable is summarizing Israel's treatment of its prophets. Do you remember how Stephen, before he's stoned in Acts chapter 7, references this very thing when he shouts to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Acts 7, verse 51 You see, Israel, from the very beginning, had been charged with the law of God, with the bearing of the fruit of righteousness, of justice, in her own life, so as to demonstrate and show God's grace to the world around. This was what Israel was to be. But instead, on the whole, the exact opposite had happened. They'd rejected the way of God. And now they're about to reject its final messenger. So verse 13 of our passage, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And I mentioned this in passing earlier, but I think there's a deliberate echo there of Luke chapter 3, when at Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Because, of course, by this point you realize the Son they would murder in the parable is Jesus. Perhaps they will respect him. But Jesus, who's entered the temple now, has entered the hangout of a gang of murderers. They do not want their authority threatened. They will do anything to defend their turf, which they believe belongs to them. Notice within this parable that Jesus makes a distinction between himself and the prophets who came before him and the religious leaders. The prophets were servants. He is the son. The leaders were tenants. He is the heir. 
the joint owner with the Father. Notice then too the love of the Father, the one who planted the vineyard, that in the face of Israel's hard-heartedness, he persisted, sending servant after servant after servant, finally sending his own son. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. That is Jesus' last explanation of what was going on in his coming to Jerusalem. But the story doesn't stop there. The vineyard owner will return at last. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Or in other words, their rejection of Jesus the Son will be taken up by God, the vineyard owner, into the rebuilding plans for his people. It will be the judgment of Israel's leadership. It will mean the reassignment to a people mostly now Gentiles, as recorded in the book of Acts. And it's when they heard this that they shout, Surely not! Surely not! Who is it that says that? I think now it's the people. It's not just the leaders now. Jesus was telling this parable to the people, after all. It is against the leaders. But here I think it's the people who respond. In other words, I think Jesus now corrects and challenges the people's response in the rest of our text by now connecting the story that he's just told and its conclusion about the tenant's punishment He connects that to their present circumstances. So that the scriptural citation that Jesus is about to give, the parable being done now, the scriptural citation Jesus now gives them becomes a prophecy that these horrible things have been played out in the leader's treatment of the prophets in the past and now they will be played out in the murder of the son. I think that's what Jesus means to communicate in verse 17. Just look at how Luke portrays this. They say, surely not. But he looked directly at them. Why why would Luke record that detail? He looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's Jesus doing? He's citing Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 22. He's citing that because it's the same psalm that had been echoed by the crowds in Luke 19 on the road into Jerusalem as they shout, 
as Jesus is entering the city, they shout Psalm 118. Nearly everyone recognized Psalm 118 as being messianic. That's why the Pharisees objected so strongly when the crowd applies this to Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem as Zion's king. Luke 19 has the people's quotation of Psalm 118, verse 26. And then the Pharisees' response, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples And instead of that, now, after telling this parable of the wicked tenants, Jesus again directs them to Psalm 118. This time to verse 22 of it, where the stone that becomes a capstone, the central stone at the top of the architectural thing that holds everything together, that's the meaning, the capstone. The peace without which nothing can stand. Jesus says, this stone that becomes the capstone is understood to be the Messiah, that the builders that rejected the stone, we're not just stonemasons, but here now, those who were the builders of Israel, the leaders of Israel. In other words, Psalm 118, verse 22, prophesies that the leaders of Israel would reject the stone. The Messiah, Jesus, who subsequent to his rejection, knows that he will become the capstone. And the capstone of what? Well, It's Luke's next book of Acts that makes clear it's not about a literal building made of stones. No longer. These leaders, these ones who will in just a few days coerce the Roman governor to execute the son, they don't take into account the possibility of a resurrection. These workers may reject Jesus now, but they'll find that he'll be vindicated, that he'll be seen as the true Messiah, that he'll build the true temple, that he himself will be the capstone. Which leaves one remaining aspect to this passage, because the use Jesus makes now of this messianic image is immediately linked to the judgment of God from the parable. Because according to verse 18, a challenging verse, verse 18, this rejected stone now made the cornerstone will be the judgment stone. Everyone who falls on that stone, Jesus says, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Do you remember Simeon's words when Mary and Joseph brought baby Jesus into, of all places, the temple? Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall, for the fall and the rising of many 
in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed, many will fall on this stone. Or maybe it's that the stone will fall on them. And there are some Old Testament texts that likely stand behind the complicated imagery that Jesus is employing here, but it's not hard to hear something like the image that we get in Daniel chapter 2 coming out of Jesus' words. Where in Daniel chapter 2, it's the coming of the messianic day of the Lord that is likened to a great stone that rolls down from the mountain and the stone shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Quoting from Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. But whether it's Daniel or it's another of a few different texts that lies behind Jesus' image here, the point isn't up for grabs, that those who oppose the Son will be destroyed. The vineyard will be given to others. Which brings us then at the conclusion back to the main point, I think. It's Jesus who has all the authority. Therefore, our stance towards Him, the Son, is everything. We will fall or we will rise. The thoughts of our hearts being revealed. And the temple authorities got it, partly. They perceived that the parable was about them. But they couldn't hear the warning of God's judgment or they didn't believe it. And so they set themselves at the conclusion of our text to fulfill everything to the letter. They will throw him out of the vineyard and kill him. But it's the vineyard owner who will have the last word. You know the verse of Acts chapter 2, verse 36, the marvelous sermon of Peter on the occasion of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. Because as the story moves forward, the cornerstone is firmly in place. And it is now in the light of Easter that we begin to see the renewed vineyard bearing fruit. The new temple being built. The people of God finally declaring in word and deed the way of the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.